say, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Uh, this uh, Gurudas says, we are recording this. It'll be on SoundCloud in a day or two. So no need to record. It'll be recorded. All right. So we're hearing um, the beginning of the fifth canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And it, it's, it starts with a transcendental dispute, right, <laughs> between great souls about what's it. It's kind of like, you know, in the early days of it, well, should I remain a brahmachari? Should I take sannyas? Should I get married? It's kind of uh, not dissimilar from that in, in its own way because we have here Priyavrata, who's kind of the pawn, so to speak, between Narada and Swayambhuvamanu. Swayambhuvamanu wanting to uh, retire and uh, focus on his spiritual practices and then in a responsible way turn the kingdom over to Priyavrata. And Narada, who's saying, well, you know, why waste your time getting entangled in uh, worldly life? You, you know, remain a brahmachari. And so Lord Brahma has to uh, get involved and uh, help the situation. So we will uh, start with verse 15, okay? My dear Priyavrata, according to our association with different modes of material nature, the Supreme Personality of Godhead gives us specific bodies and the happiness and distress we achieve. We must therefore remain situated as he is and be conducted by the Supreme Personality of Godhead exactly as a blind man is led by a person who has eyes uh, with which to see. And Prabhupada writes that since we cannot avoid the plan of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, we must agree to be directed by him, just as a blind man is led by a person who has eyes. And then a little later, uh, this process of surrendering by following the instructions of the Supreme Personality of God, oh, I'll get to that in a minute. So this point about following the plan of the Lord, as somebody mentioned last week, it's reminiscent of uh, Bhishma Dev speaking to Yudhisthira Maharaj in the uh, first canto. So I thought I'd read a, a few verses from that um, because it, it, it illustrates this point very well. So Bhishma Dev said, and he's speaking to the Pandavas, oh, how, oh, what terrible sufferings and what terrible injustices you good souls suffer for being the sons of religion personified. You did not deserve to remain alive under those tribulations, yet you were protected by the brahmanas, God, and religion. As far as my daughter-in-law Kunti is concerned, upon the great General Pandu's death, she became a widow with many children, and therefore she suffered greatly. And when you were growing up, she suffered a great deal also because of your actions. And then Bhishma Dave concludes, in my opinion, oops, sorry, in my opinion, this is all due to inevitable time, under whose control every one in, in every planet is carried, just as the clouds are carried by the wind. If you could just imagine, right, the clouds being carried by the wind on a windy day. So inevitable time controls everyone and pushes everyone. Oh, how wonderful it, uh, 
Well, actually, you know, I could for this just to uh, keep you awake and everything. You can, uh, oops, and I have to minimize this. Am I, okay. Oh, how wonderful is the influence of inevitable time. It is irreversible. Otherwise, how could there be reverses in the presence of King Yudhisthira, the son of the demigod controlling religion? Bhima, the great fighter with a club. The great bowman Arjuna with his mighty weapon Gandiva. And above all, the Lord, the direct well-wisher of the Pandavas. O king, no one can know the plan of the Lord, Sri Krishna. Even though great philosophers inquire exhaustively, they are bewildered. O best among the descendants of Bharata, Yudhisthira, I maintain, therefore, that all this is within the, within the plan of the Lord. Accepting the inconceivable plan of the Lord, you must follow it. You are now the appointed administrative head, and my Lord, you should now take care of those subjects who are now rendered helpless. Okay, so, whoops. Stop sharing. Um, so that's quite an instructive statement isn't it by uh by uh it's a wonderful statement by bishman dave and and you know there's times uh in our life where we can't understand why things are happening to us and there's also things in the shastra that we we might understand why would krishna allow that to happen right what you know how does it that krishna chose i'm reading the 11th canto right now of the bhagavatam how is it that Krishna chose the, uh, you know, the Yadus to get in a fratricidal war and kill, e kill each other, right? Um, of course, there are explanations in the Shastra about why that happened. Or, or even uh, the 11th Canto was, you know, why after all this wonderful discussions of, of, of Krishna's Vrindavan pastimes and his Gorka pastimes, etc., why... Um, is Krishna teaching the Uddhava Gita, which is all about gyan and renunciation and things, you know? So it, there's, there's explanations, philosophical explanations to most things in, in what happened. But there also has to, I think there's also a time when we just say, you know, Ram Ram Krishna, you know, um, I, I don't understand this, but I do know you're the supreme controller. I do know things are within your grasp. And I I don't think it's blind faith to say, you know, sometimes, what is that saying? Ours is not to reason why. Have you ever heard that? Uh, and not as, not as a general rule, uh, things are, are understandable through the philosophy of Krishna consciousness, but there also comes a time when you just say, Krishna, you can do as you want. I'm your servant. You know, kind of like that last prayer of the Shikshastika, that, you know, you may handle me roughly by your embrace or leave me brokenhearted by not being present before me. You're still my worshipful Lord. And here, you know, Bhishma is kind of doing that in his own way. He's just saying, Hare Krishna, these are, these, this is the, the time factor is, is the plan of the Lord. And somehow or other, it was part of his plan that the Pandavas had to go through so many tribulations, Kunti had to go through so many tribulations, and and he was kind of telling you to say, okay, well, well whatever happened, happened. Now you're the king, get to work. Right? So in some ways, um, part of our life is 
okay, what happened happened now. I have to increase my bhakti. I have to practice bhakti now. I just read a, a really cool sentence yesterday in one of Sachinandan Swami's books that said that bhakti happens in the present. Right? Meaning we, we all have, we have choices. Um, we may be lamenting about something that happened in the past or worried about something that happened in the future, but we can be practicing bhakti right this second in the present moment. And he says that's where bhakti takes place. Just like Krishna says, nasoshati, nakanshati, don't lament, don't hanker. I, I really, somehow that sentence jumped out at me when I was reading it yesterday or the day before yesterday, that bhakti takes place in the present. So here, Bhishma is kind of saying, okay, this is if somehow the plan of the Lord, all these tri those tribulations are over now. You have this duty to perform. Uh, focus on that. Right? So some thoughts on what I just said or, or what we just read. Hare Krishna Prabhu. This is Raghunandan Das. I know your voice, yes. Um, to me, the, the first thing that jumped out of uh, the statements when you were reading uh, was the principle of acceptance. So Bhishma Dev was also using the word accept mm. the plan of the Lord. And that principle of acceptance is so critical in my day-to-day -day life when so many uh, situations happen. And if I keep getting annoyed or frustrated with it, then I'm not able to work properly in my normal level of uh, working. But the principle of acceptance is, helps me to deal not only with the situations, but with also my interactions with my fellow living beings. So I found that to be very powerful and inspiring. Well, that, thank you for Raghunan. Thank you, Raghunan. Let me um, challenge you a little bit on that, okay? Or, or not challenge necessarily, but let's look at it from another angle. You, you're probably, all of you are, are aware of the uh, serenity prayer or the prayer for serenity that says, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? So is so this prayer, that, that prayer would be indicating, Rabbi Nandan Prabhu, that um, there's some things that we do accept that we can't change, right? You know, um, but what about things that are within our grasp? How do we deal with that? How do we uh, take take a Krishna conscious action, you could say, and not think ourselves the doer? Uh, you, have you thought about that to, uh, in in light of what you were just talking about in terms of acceptance? Yeah, um, and in, with respect to the serenity prayer that you quoted, uh, to me it looks like I, I have lot lots of improvement that I can make to myself. So I can change in that direction. So that is within my control mm. on what I, what I would like to change in myself. But uh, typically, I, the condition tendency is I want the situation to change and I want the other persons to change. Rather than looking at it like that, I can look at myself and say, oh, I have room to improve. Very good. Yes. Uh, anyone like to add to add to that point? 
Yes, Prabhu. Yes, Mahamantra Prabhu. Um, even the things that I know I have to improve, sometimes, most of the times, I need external help. Ah. Very good. So, so, so even in the things that we can improve in the serenity prayer, perhaps, that's still, um, we can be prayerful about that and ask for help yes. to do that. Yes, Prabhu. Okay. Good, good. Others? Nandamuki, this is like you're, you're like the philosopher. You're supposed to tell us about this. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Don't worry about it. But I was just joking with you. But um, other thoughts from other devotees about this. Hare Krishna Prabhu, this is Jivta Tudas. Hare Bhav Jivta Prabhu. Hare Krishna Danwats. So, Srila Prabhupada, you know, in 1975, in his lecture, he gave a very nice example. If you are thrown in the middle of an Atlantic Ocean, you know, hit by waves, mm-hmm. what should be the tendency? The tendency is to you know, swim instead of changing Atlantic Ocean, instead of changing the external condition, we have to become strong internally. And that's why we take to spiritual practice to grow that strength within us with proper guidance, with the association of sadhus, and by taking shelter of the scriptures to help us gain that understanding as what we can control and what we cannot control, and then go in that direction. Right, right. And the additional point that he makes in that is that if you're thrown in the middle, even the best swimmer in the world has no hope. Yes. So he has to become prayerful. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I think that this is such a key point. And, and you know, I, we've talked about this. I think we haven't talked about this for a year or two now, but uh, sometimes our mind, we, we're convinced that a material circumstance has to change for us to be happy or for us to, you know, be Krishna conscious or whatever. Um, and often Krishna is trying to teach us that it's not the uh, material circumstance that, you know, it's, it's our consciousness that, that is the primary thing that has to change. You know, just like, uh, you know, the, the example we often give of uh, Arjuna, having the Brahmastra thrown at him. And prior to him even asking Krishna to deal with it, he first glorifies Krishna. He corrects his consciousness and then deals with it in, in a practical way. Um, and sometimes for us, we deal with the practical thing first with that and think of Krishna later. Whereas Krishna says in the eighth chapter, verse seven, tasmat sarveshu kaleshu mamanusmara yudhicha, to remember him and then to our activities. Okay, any uh, any other points before we move on? This is Divyanandas. Yes, Divyanandas. I was just thinking of one point. I don't know if it's applicable. Um, but I was thinking that as long as we are doing activities that are favorable to Krishna consciousness, then it will give us the strength to deal with anything that comes up. As long as we are doing. So when you were saying, what about things in our grasp? And I think the things in our grasp are the things that things that are favorable to Krishna consciousness. We can decide if one, what is favorable and what is not favorable based on scriptures. And if we are doing those favorable activities, that will give us the strength to deal with 
anything that that comes in our life. Okay. All right. I accept that. The only the only addition I would make to that is um, doing those activities in the right consciousness. Because one can you know one could be like you know waving the incense in front of the deities as a pajari, and you know his or her mind is uh, 10,000 miles away, right? Or, and so the, the activity is wonderful, right? They're a pujari, they're on the altar, it's great, um, but it's not, it's not complete. So it's the activity and the consciousness behind them. Is that all right to add that? Yes, yes, definitely. Thank cool. you. Thank you. Yeah, oh, you know, just an addition. Krishna uh, Prabhu. Yes, Shakshi, did you say something? Go ahead. Yes, Prabhuji, that like uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, there are three stages. One is acceptance and then courage uh, to uh, perceive and uh, surrender, right? So um, the courage to, uh, courage to perceive is the area where I have some difficulties where um, I mostly I just go and accept, uh, but that is something... That bothers me sometimes. Like I, I feel like I'm a failure. Uh, but like, um, just acceptance also like makes me feel sometimes failure. Like you know, in some circumstances, yes, uh, it helps me to overcome. But in some circumstances, that um, you know, we should, we should, we should have a courage to perceive. Um, in, in those circumstances, true surrender or talking to the deities or doc- talking to a devotees um, really gives a different perception um, and courage uh, to uh, to proceed further. So yeah. uh, that's my thoughts. Too. Yeah, yeah. Courage, you know, we could also say courage similar to determination. Like here it says, the courage to change the things I can. And we study Utsahan Nishchaya Dharyat, right? Uh, to have enthusiasm, patience, and confidence or... Uh, enthusiasm um and certainly Prabhupada had unlimited courage to come on a a, a steamship at the age of 69 to to america right <laughs> yeah the, the Udas, blind, you want to say something yeah, uh, the blind man has uh speak a little louder uh, please sure the blind man has great courage uh it's such a striking analogy i just wanted to get back to it um in in uh people who are blind that uh, they try to make their own way in life and the shastra here is is very specifically guiding us we're blind but we need we need the guidance and and the verse uh, or the purport didn't say it but we understand that when we're talking about guiding by the Supreme Lord, we're talking about the spiritual master. Mm-hmm. Very good. So this purport goes on to say the process of surrendering by following the instructions of the Supreme Personality of Godhead is not meant for any particular caste or creed. A Brahmin can surrender and so can a Chatriya, a Vaisha, or Sudra. Everyone can adopt this process. So the process of bhakti is not uh, limited um, by any Varnashram distinction. One can practice Sarva Dharmam Mam Ekam Sharanam Very good. Um, 
Oh, and then one other nice point in this purport. Similarly, being completely surrendered to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, we should not aspire for happiness or regret distress. We must be satisfied with the position allotted to us by the Lord. So, you know, our mind is... Um, Uh, often, you know, accepting and rejecting according to aspiring for happiness and distress. And it's such a preoccupation of the mind that um, we don't think of Krishna's pleasure, <laughs> right? Uh, we must be satisfied position and we don't just think, okay, whatever. It's become neutral to happiness and distress and fixed in now, to become neutral to happiness and stress is what the Ganis aspire for. And for us, that's a preliminary step, or you could say it's a part and parcel step of focusing on Krishna's pleasure. Because when you're focused on Krishna's pleasure, um, you know, you're not thinking of your happiness and stress. I, like for some people, right, at least, you know, some of the things you read in the paper, some some doctors and nurses, they're just... Okay, I may, I may get COVID-19, I may not, but I have to focus on taking care of my patients. Now, that's, of course, a material um, thing, but, but you get, we can get the idea of, uh, and that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? To really, because we, we've been thinking about our own uh, happiness and avoiding our own distress for so many lifetimes. And now to try to become free from that frame of mind is... Um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. As you were saying that, it occurred to me how much blind faith is in a statement like that. Oh, let me help my patients. I don't know if I'm going to get it or not. It's, there's a lot of blind faith in there. Yeah. And it's, it's by the way, you know, as an aside, uh, I know of at least three, maybe four devotees who have passed away because of the virus. And 70 or 80 devotees in UK have it. Um, wow, it's uh, it's a serious. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law both ha have had it. They're 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 okay now. Wow. Um, so it's not uh, it's not a uh, joke. <laughs> it's not a joke at all. Um, yeah. Okay, so we'll move on. I think we're reading text sixteen next. So. Even if one is liberated, he nevertheless accepts the body he has received according to his past karma. So he still get that body. Without misconception, however, he regards his enjoyment and sufferings due to that karma the way an awakened person regards a dream while he, uh, he had while sleeping. He thus remains steadfast and never works to achieve another material body under the influence of the three modes of material nature. And Prabhupada writes that while sleeping, one dreams many unreal things. But when he awakens, he disregards them and makes progress in factual life. Similarly, a liberated person, who, a one who has completely understood that he is not the body but a spirit soul, disregards past activities performed in ignorance and performs his present activities in such a way that they produce no reactions. A little later, a liberated person, therefore, does not think about whatever he has ignorantly done in the past. Instead, he acts in such a way that he will not produce another body by fruitive activities. Um, 
talk about dreaming. I, I, I read this recently from Prabhupada. As, a, as servant of Maya, he sometimes becomes a king, sometimes an ordinary citizen, sometimes a brahmana, sometimes a sudra, and so on. Sometimes he's a happy man, sometimes a prosperous man, sometimes a small insect. Sometimes he is in heaven and sometimes in hell. Sometimes he's a demigod, sometimes he's a demon. Sometimes he's a servant, sometimes he's a master. In this way, living entity wanders all over the universe. Only when he comes in contact with a bona fide spiritual master can he understand his real constitutional position. He then becomes disgusted with material existence. At that, so this is a, so here's the sentence that I wanted to juxtapose with what we just read. In, at that time, in full Krishna consciousness, he regrets his past experiences in material existence. This regret is very beneficial because it purifies the living entity of material conditioned life. He then prays to the Lord to engage in his service, and at that time, Krishna grants liberation from the clutches of Maya. So, in the purport we're reading, uh, it says that um, disregards past activities performed in ignorance. Um, but here, Prabhupada is also saying that, and I don't, it's not contradictory, but it's a subtle nuances, you regret that. But both both what I just read and what's in this purport say, okay, now focus on the on the present. But some but often that regret um is purifying. So but we also don't dwell on it, right? Or what to speak of thinking, oh I really had it good when I was not a devotee, I enjoyed, you know, whatever. Certainly we don't do that. Um, and we don't just wallow in our regret. But like we said earlier, bhakti happens in the present, then we focus uh, on the present and, and perform devotional activities. So any thoughts about this idea about ta- thinking about the past, regretting the past, focusing on the present? Yes, Andy. Yeah, I just think this um, idea of regret I think it's uh, on a slippery slope to uh, guilt, which is... To what? To guilt. Guilt. This this whole plague of guilt that haunts us a lot of the time, right? So I'm... And they're saying be in the present, and that is the ideal. And then you don't regret the past. You just... There are only two days you can have uh, unuseful thoughts, right? Uh, Yesterday and tomorrow, right? (laughs) So... Yes. I, this thing of regret, it can be a slippery slope. Thank you for that. And I think that's kind of what Prabhupada is hinting at in the purport even, you know, possibly I can't read his mind. But we, we know that if we, let's say we regret um, uh, drinking whiskey. Oh, so I shouldn't have drank whiskey. I really regret drinking whiskey. It's really, and then our mind's just thinking of whiskey. And in the Bhagavad Gita says, Dhyayato Vishaya that when you meditate on the objects of the senses, you become attached. So by meditating on that whiskey all the time, there may be even a tendency to again drink it. So I think, I think according to what I've read from Prabhupada, it's good to have some regret, but like you're kind of, don't wallow in it. Is that okay, Andy? Just, you know, think bad. Yeah, don't. I don't, still don't understand it. I mean, if you, if you get straight today and stay straight, then you didn't need the regret. Hmm. I guess you need it if you find you can't get straight today. It acts as an impetus, yeah. 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 
It's uh, 11 o'clock. Uh, other thoughts? <laughs> um, I would like... But who's speaking? Uh, probably my mantra that. Okay. Go ahead. Um, though, I mean, the regret is... I, what I feel is regret is necessary to remind us of where we went wrong. Mm, but you can learn from it, you're saying. Right. And it shouldn't be prohibiting us uh, going forward. Like, though, guilt and shame are the affects, but they have a purpose, you know, to make us cautious and uh, concerned. And But their purpose is not to bog us down. So if we learn the correct meaning of guilt and shame, then we can move forward, you know, with a sincere heart, uh, seeking uh, reformation. Well, if, if, by the way, just because you use those two words, guilt and shame, and I'm not recommending people necessarily read her books, although some, some people find inspiration. There's a woman named Brene Brown who yeah. makes quite an important distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt is, uh, this activity I did was wrong and uh, is bad, and shame is I am bad. I am bad, yeah. yeah. So I heard know, that. She, <laughs> said, she says guilt is good, shame is really bad. Uh, shame can be very uh, troublesome. Yeah. Uh, it also depends on what we're regretting. Uh, I'm just reading in the first canto, ninth chapter, and Prabhupada's talking about the Battle of Kurukshetra, and uh, he's saying Maharaj Yudhisthira was disturbed due to the great massacre in the Battle of Kurukshetra. Bhishma Dev could understand this, and therefore he spoke first of the terrible sufferings of Maharaj Yudhisthira. He was put into difficulty by injustice only, and the Battle of Kurukshetra was fought just to counteract this injustice. Therefore, he should not regret the great massacre. So in other words, regretting things that are beyond your control, accepting the Lord's hand in that is another way of looking at regret. Uh, Raghunan Prabhu. Um, When we're talking about regret, uh, the pastime of Parikshit Maharaj came to my mind. He regretted what he did, and he accepted the even though it was a very higher form of punishment that came from the Brahmana's son, he accepted it as the will of the Lord. But initially we find him contemplating what he did and he feels a regret. I should not have behaved like that with him. But he was not making a guilt trip or uh, anything like that as uh, Andy Prabhu was uh, pointing out. And another point that I had was, uh, um, as you mentioned, like, we can learn from our past. We don't need to dwell on our past, but we can learn from some of those situations and our experiences from it, what we did right or what we didn't do right. So I tend to liken it with uh, driving a car. When we drive the car, we just don't keep uh, our eyes only on the front. We also take a look at the rear view mirror. So we are, the present is the one that is the driving the car, but we take a look at the rear view mirror, which is, behind and we also look in the front so it, there's nothing wrong in learning from our past okay so the, so i think we're we're coming to a kind of conclusion we we can learn from our past certainly we can 
we can regret things, but there is a, a slippery slope, using Andy's terms, uh, of that. That can even uh, affect us and put us in the mode of ignorance into inertia. Yeah. You know, so good. All um, right. It's, it's, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's amazing how you can take one sentence from Prabhupada's purport and you can talk about it for, for a long, long time. One one more thing. Yes, go ahead. Um, the time that we take to regret—that's we're in the present moment and we're doing devotional service. If we take the time to regret and think back, that's while we're in the present moment. That's devotional service. If we're yeah, if we're using it as Raghunanda or. I think it was Raghunandan who just said we can learn from it. Um, yes. And, and, you know, we have that uh, beautiful poem by Bhakti Vinod Thakur, right? Forget the past that sleeps, nor in the future dream at all, but be in times that are with thee and progress ye shall call. Wow. Where's that? That's in Saragrahi Vaishnava poem. Thank you. Okay. So let us move on. We're going to get a few verses done today, Prabhu. Uh, okay, so the next one that we're going to read in some detail is 18. Um, 17. Even if one goes from forest to forest, one who is not self-controlled must always fear material bondage because he is living with six co-wives, the mind and the knowledge-acquiring senses. What are the knowledge-acquiring senses? Yeah, seeing, hearing, touching. Those are the uh, tanmatra, but Gurudas got it right. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue. Yeah. Even householder life, however, cannot harm a self-satisfied learned man who has conquered his senses. 18. One who is situated in household life and who systematically conquers his mind and five sense organs is like a king in his fortress who conquers his powerful enemies. After one has been trained in household life and his lusty desires have decreased, he can move anywhere without danger. So Prabhupada writes, such a mature student is allowed to become a householder. And because he was first trained in conquering his senses, he retires from household life and becomes vanaprastha as soon as the strong waves of youthful life are passed and he reaches the verge of old age at 50 or slightly more. No. I can't remember. Uh, but he was asking, he was talking about the, uh, the age of 50. And uh, so here's a few quotes from Prabhupada. Then as soon as he reaches 50 years or a little advanced, when he might have a grown up child at home, then the father and mother leaves, leaves home. Pancha Sordham Vanem The gentleman, when the boy is grown up, he may get his boy married and get out of home. The wife may remain with him as friend, but there is no sex life. That is called Vanaprastha. Vanaprastha means retired life, and that is also another training. Another quote from Prabhupada. Um, then up to 50 years, he can indulge in household life. Household life, according to Vedic civilization, is a sort of license for sense gratification, but not for all the time. The injunction is, 
panchasodham vanam brajat. Just after your 50th year, you must give up, retire from householder. That is called vanaprastha. Vanaprastha means you can take your wife with you and travel all over the world in place, not, not during the COVID-19, of course, uh, in places of holy pilgrimage just to give up your attachment for family life. In this way, one is, when one is completely detached from family affection, then he sends back his wife to the elderly children to take care of her, and he takes sannyas. Um, and there's different, my point is that there's, man, there's different quotes. Um, here's an interesting one. When one takes Shetra sannyas, he leaves his household life and goes to a place of pilgrimage devoted to Lord Vishnu. Such places include Purushottama, Jagannathpuri, Navadvitam, and Maturadham. Now listen to this. The Shetra sannyasi lives in these places alone or with his family. Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur considers Shetra sannyas to be the preferable Vanaprastha situation in this age of Kali. So that would be, you, 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 you could be a Shetra sannyasi and still living with your family. Uh, which is, and he says that that kind of situation was preferable to Varnaprastha in, in the age of Kali. Um, so if, if we're trying to look for essential things, and that's what we were trying to have that conversation a few weeks ago on this, is that uh, by the age of 50, we should really be, uh, well on the way to giving up uh, sense gratification, <laughs> right? And and generally that would mean uh, you know, not having any more children, for example, and getting serious about, uh, you know, that life is not, this body is not eternal. Mm. And, you know, Prabhupada was certainly pushing us to have that kind of, uh, have that kind of focus. We don't know how he would have dealt practically with that because he didn't really have anyone a disciples we mentioned this before in the vanaprastha age practically speaking um while he was with us you know uh and and it's kind of still exactly figuring out how to uh what vanaprastha means because it could mean as simple as you know just okay no more no more sex life or no more children right? you know and and one you know carries out one's duties um it's also more of a challenge now because I don't know if this is true in ISKCON, but uh, in the world, certainly, people are having children later in life, right? So by the time you're 50, your, your child may still be a teenager, um, as opposed to, you know, in earlier days, you'd often have children starting in your late teens or early 20s, and by 50, your kids are almost 30 years old, right? And would more easily help you financially and... Uh, Take, take care of your wife if you need to take sannyas or whatever. So, you know, these kind of varnashram things may need to get adjusted, but still the idea of really getting serious about life and trying to give up any sense of kind of youthful frivolity is uh, at 50 years old is, is certainly a uh, Krishna conscious idea. Some thoughts on this? No one wants to touch this topic, I see. <laughs> Hare Krishna, Prabhu. 
Um, so one thought I have is that uh, the preparation has to begin early, like you're like you're saying. Basically, if we have to do this at fifty, then one has to start preparing when they're you know twenty or twenty-five, you know, brahmachari ashram, and then get into grihastha life and practice those principles you learn from that ashram in that life. So, but most of us probably joined after we were married. So, I guess the sooner we start preparing, the better. That's a thought. I have. Yeah, and so for those of us who are in that situation, it's it's good to at least um, focus on the seriousness of Krishna consciousness, even in, in one's household. How old are your child or children? Are? Um, he's four, Prabhu. Yeah, so yeah, you can't take sannyas for at least a year, Prabhu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, but the point is, you know, the, 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 the essential point of, barna, of ashramas is, you know, there's different times in our lives when we have different duties, right? right? And so, obviously, in this time in your life, your duties take good care of your wife, take good care of your child, uh, make your home a Krishna conscious home and a loving home, things like that. And that won't always be. You know, I remember there was a time when my son was four, but now he's 28, right? And, uh, you know, I don't have to uh, worry about him like when, I, when he was four. <laughs> so there's different stages in our lives. and and uh, and how this applies to those practicing Krishna consciousness may also be adjusted. Because there are statements from Prabhupada and Bhakti you Vinod know, Thakur, for example, that sannyasa isn't necessary if one's household is Krishna conscious. Yes, Other thoughts? Okay, then let's move on. Uh, the next verse that we're going to study is 21 okay 19 lord brahma said uh, continued my dear priyavrata seek shelter inside the opening in the lotus of the feet of the lord whose navel is also like a lotus thus conquer the six sense organs Accept material enjoyment because the Lord extraordinarily, so that's not like, doesn't happen to us every day, right? Has ordered you to do so. You will thus always be liberated from material association and be able to carry out the Lord's order in your constitutional position. Text 20, Sukadeva Swami continued, after thus being instructed by Lord Brahma, who is a spiritual master of the three worlds, Priyabrata, who uh, his own position being inferior offered obeisances, accepted the order and carried it out with great respect. Lord Brahma was then worshipped by Manu, who respectfully satisfied him as well as he could. Priyavrata and Narada also looked upon Brahma with no tinges of resentment. Having engaged Priyavrata in accepting his father's request, Lord Brahma returned to his abode, Satyaloka which is indescribable by the endeavor of mundane, of mundane mind and words, or words. So then Prabhupada writes, very nice point. Narada was not at all sorry that he had been frustrated in making Priyavrata a disciple. Both Priyavrata and Narada were, were exalted personalities who knew how to respect Lord Brahma. Therefore, instead of looking upon Brahma with resentment, they very feelingly offered him their respects. So um, this is a perfect example 
of how to react when we don't get our way in life, right? Narada didn't get his way, so to speak, right? He wanted to make him, keep, keep him a brahmachari and, you know, instruct him as he understood was appropriate to not get entangled in, in um, kingly life. And he was, uh, he saw the hand of the Lord. Of course, it helps when Lord Brahma comes down, right? You know, it's, it's like, you know, it's pretty serious, right? Uh, your father comes down and tells you what to do. But still, the point being, the, the, the one lesson we can glean from this is, what is our reaction when we don't get our way? Do we criticize the person who defeated us? Do we, you know, feel sorry for ourselves? Mm, yeah, do, yeah, do we find fault with others? Or do we say, you know, uh, just like uh, Raghunandan Prabhu was saying, and we were reading about the, you know, the, uh, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Right? So he couldn't change that. Lord, you know, uh, he got, he got, uh, got defeated by a superior authority, Lord Brahma, and, but he had no resentment. That, that's the key thing. No resentment, no bad feelings. He accepted it wholeheartedly. It's a great example for us, uh, the way Narada Muni accepted defeat, so to speak. Right? It really, and and Swayambhuvamana, for that matter, didn't go, nah, 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 nah. I got my way and you didn't. You know, he didn't get into a whole, uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Sometimes we, we may uh, think like that a little bit. And he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't do that. So some thoughts on his uh, reaction. Hare Krishna Prabhu. So again, uh, looking at uh, previous canto where we were discussing about Prithu Maharaj and uh, when Lord Vishnu and Brahma instructed him not to carry out the final, the 10th, 100th sacrifice, Yajna, Indra did not go like that. Right. And, uh, so just like Manu did not go. So again, they were very respectful of the, you know, and they were very grateful that, you know, the situation was managed. So in this case, again, Priyavrata followed the instructions and they wish Narada he had given his instructions. Sometimes the instructions are just like, you know, seeds. They are sowed and they take some time to fructify. The message is important or the inherent message is important. So right. that message has been accepted by Priyavrata and he's taking a higher order message and he's carrying it out very nicely. So it's a very nice example for us yeah, to follow nice. the instructions. Hare Krishna. Please remember this example. It's a very nice example. A really, really practical example for our life. Hard way. What I learned and what still I'm learning is like when a saintly person suggests something and the mind is uh, going negative, like our. Uh, not accepting it is just it's the mind actually it is my own anartha mm-hmm. uh, but um, so we need to really like and I'm, I'm, I'm really liking this how without resentment they completely accepted it uh, because looking at the position of like Narada or Brahma they are not for fault finding or anything but they are trying to elevate the consciousness so similarly it i mean as you said it's very very applicable for me actually yeah. mm, good now this doesn't mean we can't ask 
uh, senior Vaishnava or our spiritual master, you know, uh, have you considered this or, or, you know, what about that? But sometimes there comes a times when they might just say, listen, this is the way it is. you accept it or not? And then, then that's up to us how we're going to uh, react to that. Yeah. Yep. Right. Bro. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Other thoughts? A quick question here, Prabhu. Yes, Prabhu. Um, do you know of a situation where something like this may have happened that, you know, a devotee accepts the instruction of a senior authority without questioning it? And and there may be like, you know, forgot to ask or forgot to point out some one piece of information that may have been relevant, but of the goodness of his or her heart, they accepted the instruction and they followed it. Could there ever be any loss to that? Well, that's why, that's why exactly why I mentioned that there's no, there's no um, injunction against, against us asking for rationale or an understanding, right? Um, it, it enters different realms, Prabhu. It also enters the realm of uh, personal relationship, right? Uh, and the trust level in that relationship. So let's say, you know, if it's a person that you really, really, really trust and they gave you some suggestion that, or some instruction that really went, you know, as they say in America, went south, right? <laughs> Didn't work out. Then, you know, usually you can have a discussion with that person and, you know, mm-hmm. what if you, you know, uh, in your family, your father asks you to do something or your spouse asks you to do something and you do it and it, it went belly up. You know, do you just like, okay, um, I'm not going to deal with my parents the rest of my life or my spouse the rest of my life. Right. So a lot of, some of it has to do with that, that, uh, that, that relationship. And, and, and also, you know, there's, in other words, there's a number of factors as we were reading earlier, there's the whole, uh, there's a Krishna factor, <laughs> most important factor. Uh, uh, and that we heard in Bhishma Dev, right. In, in the passage that we read that, you know, cause People could have said, how can the house of shellac and the poison and how can these be happening to such pious people, you know? Mm. But, you know, right? Um, of course, that wasn't necessarily an instruction, so that, which is your point. So there's, um, but we're not a an organization of religious fanatics either, right? We, you know, mm-hmm. so we can ask for a, a, an understanding of, of why that instruction is there. Right. That's that's uh, certainly um, okay to do that. You know the 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 point about asking questions uh, is a is it's it's a lot of it is the mood, right? You know you can ask a question like, please help me understand, or you know, what about nonsense? Why are you asking me to do that silly thing, right? right. You know, and, and, and you know it'll be uh, different. But we don't we're not a cult that just you know here drink this Kool Aid. Right, kind of thing. Um, so, is that all right? That's great. Thank you for the yeah. question. Yeah. Thank you. Other thoughts? I was something crossed my mind, but it, it slipped my mind as I was answering that question. Uh, I mean, you know, so there's when the trust is very high, you know, there, there are statements in the Shastra, right? And we know them, right? Where uh, the guru says, it's, it's a rope. It, no, it's a snake. It's a snake. No, it's a rope, right? And, uh, 
there is that side to thing. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, there were times when devotees, generally speaking with Prabhupada, remember we were in our 20s when Prabhupada was in his 70s. And, you know, we were, you know, very naive about the nature of the world. And he was, he knew the nature of the world very well, both spiritually and, and even from his life experiences, which were also spiritual in his case. Um, but I remember one devotee, especially Yogeshwar Prabhu. He was, one, when I read uh, the different transcriptions and the morning walks and things, his name jumps up at me as a person who would question Prabhupada. Um, uh, respectfully, of course, but would like say, Pablo, why do you, why do you say that? You know, things like that. And it, and it was really good because it brought out more of, uh, it helped Prabhupada clarify things. Right. Okay. Um, and certainly now in retrospect, you know, in 2020 hindsight, there probably are a list of 10, ten questions that, Every senior devotee in ISKCON wish we had asked Prabhupada, <laughs> but, you know, and we didn't. Yeah. Is that all right? Great, Prabhu. Thank you so much. Other thoughts? Okay. And let's move on. Oh, and just, just a nice, interesting statement about Lord Brahma's time, uh, his, his age, right? It says, you know, how how long his, you know, how 4,300,000 years is multiplied by a thousand is 12 years of his life. And then Prabhupada writes, therefore, we cannot factually comprehend even 12 hours of Lord Brahma's life to say nothing of the 100 years that constitute his entire lifetime. How then can we understand his abode? <laughs> so it's like, Prabhupada, one of those statements where Prabhupada just broadens our, our worldview. Uh, okay, the next verse, which we're also going to discuss, 22. Swayambhuva Manu, with the assistance of Lord Brahma, thus fulfilled his desires. With the permission of the great sage Narada, he delivered to his son the governmental responsibility for maintaining and protecting all the planets of the universe. He thus achieved relief from the most dangerous Poisonous ocean of material desires. Prabhupada writes in the purport, another significant statement is that Swayambhuvamana took great satisfaction from abnegating the responsibility for ruling all the planetary systems of the universe. At present, politicians are very eager to take charge of the government and they engage their men in canvassing from door to door to get votes to win the post, the president, or a similar exalted office. Does that sound familiar? On the contrary, however, herein we find that King Priyabrata had to persuade, had to be persuaded by Lord Brahma to accept the post of emperor of the entire universe. Similarly, his father, Svayambhuvamanu, felt relieved to entrust the universal government to Priyabrata. Thus, it is evident that the kings and executive heads of government are the Vedic, the Vedic age never accepted their positions for sense enjoyment. So, I mean, what a contrast, right? Uh, the, the, it's likely that the two people running for president in America are both well over 70. One is 77 or 78, right? <laughs> um, so they didn't follow the, uh, at the age of 50, take on a cross. No. Uh, and 
and they're eager to achieve that post rather, you know, and there's certainly all kinds of, uh, what do they call them? Uh, uh, anyway, you know, people collecting money to, uh, for the ad campaigns and everything like that. Um, and there are people going door to door, whatever, canvassing for votes. So it's very different than being reluctant to um, take the post. I guess maybe there's some examples. Wasn't, wasn't the King George who was kind of reluctant to take the post uh, during World War II in England? His brother had to leave the post because he married that, that, remarried that American woman, right? Something like that. I think that was about his language difficulty. His, the King's well, Speech is that film about that. Yeah, it was also about, yes, I think that's part of it, yes, yeah. But he, anyway, he was reluctant. Um, but generally, it's not the case. Um, so it's so just, you know, the, the, when I read that, that part of the paragraph, I just saw, wow, what a contrast. Right? You know, Swayam Bhubamana is trying to get out of there to practice spiritual life. Priyavrata is saying, hey, I want to be a brahmachari. Yeah. And it's so vastly uh, different that it's almost inconceivable. And of course, the, the system is set up that you have to really, really want it to even try for it, right? A position of... Um, so I'm wondering, I, I never really thought about it until five seconds ago. I wonder if that's part of why Srila Prabhupada would sometimes put down democracy. He didn't always. Sometimes he would say, no, it's the, it's the process for Kali Yuga. But other times he would call it demon crazy. So, uh, both were there. Any quick thoughts on that? I agree. The, the, the politicians of today, they always see that their, their next re-election... It's 11.30. Oh, it's 11.30. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they always they always see their re-election, their next re-election. Like uh, it was said that as soon as the current president got into office, he was already campaigning for his next election. Right, and and and, uh, and therefore it affects everything they do. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, and and the the other world leaders like they're they're going even much further. Like uh, in Russia and China, they've acted to make themselves president for life. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, according to this then, it's quite a challenge to, yeah. Any uh, further thoughts on this? Okay, let's move on. We are next studying verse 24. It's a quick thing there about marriage. Verse 23. Following the orders of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Maharaj Priyabrata, fully engaged in worldly affairs, yet he always thought of the lotus feet of the Lord, which are the cause of liberation for, from all material attachment. Although Priyabrata Maharaj was completely freed from all material contamination. He ruled the material world just to honor the orders of his superiors. And then the next verse. Thereafter, Maharaj Priyabrata married uh, Bahishmati, the daughter of Prajapati named Vishvakarma. 
in in her he begot ten sons equal to him in beauty, character, magnanimity, and other qualities. He also begot a daughter, the youngest of all, named Urjasvati. And Prabhupada writes that sometimes we are criticized because although I am a sannyasi, I have taken part in the marriage ceremonies of my disciples. It must be explained, however, that since we have started a Krishna conscious society, and since a human society must also have ideal marriages, to correctly establish an ideal society, we must take part in marrying some of its members, although we have taken to the path of renunciation. This may be astonishing to persons who are not very interested in establishing Taivi Bharnashram, the transcendental system of four orders and four spiritual, uh, spiritual orders, social orders and spiritual. Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, however, wanted to establish Daivi Varnashrama. In Daivi Varnashrama, there cannot be acknowledgement of social status according to birthright, because in Bhagavad Gita it is said that the determinating considerations are guna and karma, one's qualities and work. It is this Daivi Varnashrama that should be established all over the world to continue a perfect society for Krishna consciousness. It may be astonishing to foolish critics, but it is one of the functions of a Krishna conscious society. So it's almost like Prabhupada did something that would not normally be done in Varnashram, namely a sannyasi arranging marriages or getting involved in them, in order to establish Varnashram. <laughs> and I thought that was, uh, that was interesting. And also, uh, reading that is a challenge for most of us on this call who are married, and that is to um, have ideal marriages, right? To set an example. Yad yad That we, whatever great people set as an example, common people will follow. So, if uh, if we want to spread Krishna consciousness and encourage, you know, people, many many most people who are either married or have a tendency to want to get one day. Um, it's incumbent upon us to have at least good, very good marriages, if not ideal ones. So, um, so any thoughts on that? Prabhupada is extolling the, the uh, purpose of his spiritual master who wanted to establish Daivi Vanashram. And this, this purport, he, he makes it so logical sounding you know uh that you know who who would uh be against this uh only the persons who want you know unrealistically want absolute fanaticism or perfection or something and he also um uh, i was gonna say he's also pointing out that it's not by birth which is of course the in one sense, most you know, most people say, "Oh my God, Indian caste—that's the most terrible thing in the world." And we can say, "Yes, we agree." Not that, not that the system is bad, but the way the way it's being based on birth instead of on one's qualities and work, and the way, therefore, the people higher up in the system exploit those uh, lower in the system is is the concomitant part of basing it on. On birthright, and therefore, Prabhupada would sometimes say heavy things. You know, he would he would point to uh, you know uh, someone's Brahmin thread, right, and just say, "Well, that costs fifty paisa." 
or <laughs> those days less than that probably. You know, that's not anyone can get one of those strings and put it around their uh, torso. Um, it is a question of uh, having the qualities. Samadama tapasa ucham. Cleanliness, uh, <clears throat> control of the mind, control the senses, etc. Uh, that's what really makes a Brahmana. And also, it's also interesting, you know, but anyway, there's so many things that are interesting about that. But Prabhupada takes a few sentences to again reiterate that point. It's not based on birth. Other thoughts? Uh, one thought I was having here was that how a louder. Oh, uh, I was thinking how how liberal and how compassionate Srila Prabhupada was because this is just one example of so many things that he did that was just you know contrary to the established social Vedic customs and he took such a big risk of being criticized by the Vaishnav community by his god brothers but he did it um, just for out of his compassion for everyone. Um, you know, like, yeah, giving Brahman threat to everyone, I mean, Brahman initiation to everyone, um, allowing everyone to live in the ashram, things like that. So just, yeah, just this is just one more thing in a series of things to me that right. exemplifies compassion. He even said that the reason I was successful and my god brother, uh, my god brothers weren't is that I allowed women in the ashram. So, yeah, so he, he adjusted things. Um, because, you know, Krishna consciousness in some ways was quite monastic, at least in the body and mouth to some extent. Anyway, that, that's a longer, you know, uh, discussion. But yes, he was willing to adjust things and, and, and very nicely put the way you said it. Um, what was his motivation? And that was mm-hmm. compassion. Yeah. Also, um, it reminds me of the conversation that Srila Prabhupada had with that Russian professor, Katowski or somebody, mm-hmm. where Prabhupada argues the point with him that Varnashrama Dharma is practiced all over the world, even though it might not be called per se, because there is a distinction between teachers, academicians, and leaders, administrators, warriors, and so on, and mercantile financial and business trading and all those stuff so those kinds of categorization is already there it's natural for human beings to fall under one of those categories which was the point that he was making and if it is done with a proper guidance from scriptural authorities then it could be a much better system for the betterment of humanity but unfortunately People get stuck. Oh, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's in the it's, it's something to do with religion, or it's something from old scripture which is not relevant anymore. And people come out with so many different reasons for not wanting to adhere to that standard. Right, and even in this we we chat, we we we're still working on trying to figure it out, <laughs> at least how Prabhupada wanted. Because as you said, sometimes he would just say it's already there, and. And you see that, you know, in um, any of us who work in an office, right? There's some people who, who run the organization. There's some people who are the brains behind there. There's some people who, you know, keep the building clean and uh, take out the garbage and fix the plumbing and all that. You know, the, the, the CEO doesn't fix the plumbing. But the, the difference in that in, Varna, in Daivi Varnashram is that the CEO is not thinking he or she is any better than the plumber but thinking that we're all parts and parcel of Krishna 
and serving Krishna. And this temporary designation, I may have this designation where I have this duty to perform, and you may have that designation where you have that duty to perform, but ultimately we're none of these designations, we're Krishna's eternal servant. And that's what we're our main focus on as we carry out our societal duties. Okay, we'll carry on then. Uh, we are next looking at text 29. The ten sons of Maharaj Priyavrata were named Agnidra, Idmajiva, Jagyabahu, Mahavirya, Mivira, Hiranyareta, Grita, Krishna, uh, Savana, Medhatiti, Vitihotra, and Kavi. Uh, these are also names of Agni, the fire god. Three among these ten, namely Kavi, Mahavira, and uh, Savana, lived in complete celibacy. Thus trained in brahmachari life from the beginning of childhood, they were very conversant with the highest perfection, known as Paramahamsa Ashram. Thus situated in the renounced order from the beginning of their lives, all three of them completely controlled the activities of the senses and thus became great saints. They concentrated their minds always upon the lotus feet of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is the resting place of the totality living entities, and it was therefore celebrated as Vasudev. Lord Vasudev is the only shelter of those who are actually afraid of material existence. By constantly thinking of his lotus feet, these three sons of Maharaj Priyavrata became advanced in pure devotional service. By the prowess of their devotional service, they could directly perceive the Supreme Personality of Godhead who was situated in everyone's heart as a super soul, and realized that there was qualitatively no difference between themselves and him. In, excuse me, in his other, uh, in his other wife, Maharaj Priyavrata, he got three sons namely, named Uttama, Tamasa, and Raivata. All of them later took charge of the Manvantar millennial, millenniums. After Kavi, Mahavira, and Savana were completely trained in the Paramahansa stage of life, Maharaj Priyavrata ruled the universe for 11 Arbuddhas of years. Whenever he was determined to fix his arrow upon his bowstring with his two powerful arms, all the opponents of the regulated principles of religious life would flee from his presence in fear of the unparalleled prowess he displayed in ruling the universe. He greatly loved his wife, Parhishmati, and with the increase of days, their exchange of nuptial love was also increased. By her feminine behavior, she, uh, as she dressed herself, walked, got up, smiled, laughed, and glanced about, Queen Bahishmati increased his energy. Thus, although he was a great soul, he appeared lost in the feminine conduct of his wife. His, he behaved with her just like an ordinary man, but actually he was a great soul. So uh, I focus on the interesting part of this purport where Prabhupada says, uh, to maintain such a strict vigilance, one needs encouragement from his wife. In the Varnashrama Dharma system, certain classes such as Brahmanas and Sannyasis do not need encouragement from the opposite sex. Kshatriyas and Grihastas, however, actually need the encouragement of their wives 
in order to execute their duties. So everyone has their role to play in society and in encouraging one another. Just thought I'd mention that. Uh, anything on that or we'll move on? Okay, so then we're going up to... Um, 30, right? 30 is the next one. While so excellently ruling the universe, King Priyabrata once became dissatisfied with the circumambulation of the most powerful sun god. Encircling Sumeru Hill on his chariot, the sun god illuminates all the surrounding planetary systems. However, when the sun is in the northern side of the hill, the south receives less light. And when the sun is in the south, the north receives less. Maharaj Priyabrata disliked the situation, therefore decided to make daylight in the part of the universe where there was night. He followed the orbit of the sun god on a brilliant chariot and thus fulfilled his desire. He could perform such wonderful activities because of the power he had achieved by worshipping the supreme personality of Godhead. Oh, well, this, yeah, just this point, uh, you know, Prabhupada brings up the Vaishnava sentiments. He says, although Maharaj Priyavrata devised a very powerful chariot, as brilliant as the sun, he had no desire to compete with the sun god. For a Vaishnava never wants to supersede another Vaishnava. His purpose was to give abundant benefits in material existence. So, you know, we... we uh, Something to be aware of that we, you know, in our heart, we may have desires to either know more shlokas than another devotee or donate more money than another devotee or, or, you know, in one way or another, you know, have a bigger house <laughs> than someone else, you know, um, and those are, they're, they're petty things that can enter our heart. Um, the, the anarta of comparison is can be very strong in, in our consciousness. And, and I've mentioned this before. I found, I, I mean, it's all over the world. In America, they say keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> and in, in India, I saw this very strongly when I was uh, dealing with judges and, uh, and, you know, people kind of higher in society when I was living there that, they would kind of brag about which university their child was going to or something like that. And so we want to be careful that that in one way, subtle or gross, uh, spiritual or not so spiritual, uh, enters our heart. Because first of all, in comparison to Krishna, we're all just like, you know, <laughs> forget it, right? And, and we don't want to uh, have envy in our heart. If another Vaishnava has some kind of blessing that we don't have yet, um, they deserve that. Krishna gave them that. And Krishna has, and, and so rather than trying to bring them down to our level, we want to, we can uh, be happy for them. Uh, we don't want to be, or, you know, another manifestation of this is, you know, we're supposed to be paradukha dukhi, right? Uh, unhappy when we see other people unhappy. But sometimes we become parasukaduki. We become happy to see somebody unhappy. <laughs> and, and you know, sometimes it's very subtle. We wouldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't dare say it in public, or, or you know, let let those words come out of our mouth. But still, in the in the 
we, somewhere in the crevices of our heart, we may feel that even temporarily. Um, so we need, we want to work on that because uh, here we saw that with Priyabhata, he had no desire to compete with the sun god because a Vaishnava never wants to super, supersede another Vaishnava. So some thoughts on that, on that consciousness? One thing, Prabhu, one question that comes to my mind is we, um, you know, it may be, it may be tolerable sometimes to see another person do well. Uh, but if the other person starts behaving in a way that we perceive to be um, inimical towards us, then that probably stirs up um, yeah. those undesirable feelings more, which may not have surfaced otherwise. Do you have comments on that? Yeah, we shouldn't get entangled in other people's karma. <laughs> I think that's one nice way to look at it, you know, and, and if it's gone on for some time, we may have, there may be some karmic thing going on between us and that person. And if we just kind of step aside and don't get drawn into their consciousness, then we don't, don't have to deal with that car, that karmic relationship, you know, either longer in this life or what to speak of in the next life. Doesn't mean we might not, you know, it might be a family member, right? So we still deal with them in this life, but, but to, but we um, want to be careful not to be drawn into other people's consciousness if it's, if it's in that frame of mind and not to think we're better than the other person. Like, Oh, I'm not going to get involved because I'm much more spiritual than them. We just try to be neutral, change the subject or not associate with them too intimately. Or at all, if we can avoid. But it's it's a challenge that uh, there's a there's some tendency in our heart, and we've talked about this before, to think more about the people that we don't like than about the people we do like. Okay. Uh, example, of course, is Kamsa and people like that. He was so focused, you know. We wish we were as focused on Krishna as Kamsa was. Maybe not in the same mood, right. but the same focus. Right. Right? And we could, um, so to not get drawn into someone's consciousness, or I like to think of it as their karma, uh, and to you know, be neutral towards it, I think is a good idea. Does that sound all right? It sounds great, Prabhu. Yeah, just that it can be tricky when we are meant to serve with them uh, in, a, in a close capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, sometimes topic switching helps because mm -hmm. usually they, if they're a devotee, they actually, in the core of their heart, they want to be a devotee. Mm -hmm. right? So somehow, you know, switching the subject matter of discussion it, it may or may not be possible, but some like, something like that, or praying to Krishna in our own mind. I know myself, I, I have this challenge sometimes because I deal with so many conflicts amongst, well, both in my outside work and my devotional work. Um, and so to not be caught up in that vector of, uh, of not so great consciousness is a, it's an ongoing challenge for me. But I'll keep that in mind, Prabhu. Change the topic and things like that. Thank yeah. You. What do you think about that, that uh, Paneer Subji we had last week? You know, <laughs> something like that. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's you, one thing that people can't really criticize too much. If you say, oh, I heard this Maharaj give a great lecture. Oh, that Maharaj. Blah, blah, blah. Right. You can't really criticize Paneer very much. Right. <laughs> no, you can say it's too spicy, or whatever. But yeah, you know what I mean. Usually, yeah. you want something to uh, 
what do you think about the Nationals? Of course, now you can't talk about that. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're something. not playing. <laughs> Just change, change the mood and, and yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or a common enemy, you know. <laughs> what do you think about so-and-so, I'm not going to name any, but so-and-so yeah. politician or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Jenny, thank you, everyone. Yeah. Other thoughts on this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, Andy? Uh, yeah, I was um, watching this motivational speaker on YouTube. Okay. And the man decided to become a soccer referee just to see what it was like to experience abuse. <laughs> and then he came to the realization, right? A lot of times these people are yelling at you and they're saying, oh, you're blind. Were you some kind of idiot, right? And it's offensive, right? But then he realized it's not about me, right? I mean, it wouldn't matter what who, which referee was there, they would be saying the same thing because they want their team to win. Yeah. So that's the other realization. That devotee is saying something that's kind of odious, right? If a different person was standing there, they might be saying the same thing. So we can remember in those situations so we don't take offense. It's mm. not about me. It's just this person is saying that. Yeah, nice. Nice. Thank you for that. Okay, we have seven minutes left. Should we cover one or two more? Uh, the next one I have on my list, oh, is uh, up to 35. I'm almost done with this chapter. When Priyavrata 31 uh, drove his chariot behind the sun, the rims of his chariot wheels created impressions that later became the seven oceans, dividing the planetary system known as Bhumandala into seven islands. The names of the islands are Jambu, Plaksha, uh, Salmali, Kusha, uh, hmm, Fram, how do you pronounce that one? Framsha, uh, Saka, Push, and Pushkar. Each island is twice as large as the one preceding it, and each is surrounded by liquid substance beyond which is the next island. The seven oceans respectively contain salt water, sugarcane juice, liquor, clarified butter, milk, emulsified yogurt, and sweet drinking water. All the islands are completely surrounded by these oceans, and each ocean is equal in breadth to the island it surrounds. Maharaj Priyabrata, the husband of Queen Barhishmati, gave sovereignty over these islands to his respective sons, named, uh, namely Agnidra, uh, La, hmm, boy, these ones, Ud, Udmajiva, Jagyabahu, Hiranya Reta, Reta, uh, Grita Prishta, Medhatirti and Vitihotra. Thus they all became kings by the order of their father. King Priyavrata then gave his daughter Urjasvati in marriage to Sukracharya, who begot in her a daughter named Devayani. My dear king, a devotee who has taken shelter of the dust from the lotus feet of the Lord can transcend the influence of the six material waves, namely hunger, thirst, lamentation, illusion, old age, and death, and he can conquer the mind in five senses. However, this is not very wonderful for a pure devotee of the Lord because even a person beyond the jurisdiction of the four castes, in other words, an untouchable, is immediately relieved of bondage in material existence if he utters the holy name of the Lord how many times? Even once. Hmm. Let's see. 
Uh, so Prabhupada writes, not to speak of a sanctified devotee, even a chandala, an outcast who is untouchable, is immediately freed from material bondage if he utters the holy name of the Lord even once. Sometimes caste brahmanas argue that unless one changes his body, he cannot be accepted as a brahmana. For, for since this, the present body is obtained as a result of past actions, one who has in the past acted as a brahmana takes birth as a, in a brahmana family. Therefore, they contend without such a brahmana body, one cannot be accepted as a brahmana. Herein it is said, however, that even a vidura vigata, a chandala, a fifth class untouchable, is freed if he utters the holy name even once. Being freed means that he immediately changes his body. And we see the change going the other way, right? Prabhupada would talk about sometimes people with Brahmin threads, you know, uh, driving a rickshaw, right? Uh, this verse clearly says, Sajahati Bandham. He gives up his material bondage. This End of the purport. Oops, one second, just muting everybody. Um, the body is a symbolic representation of material bondage according to one's karma. Now we understand that, right? The body is a symbolic representation of material bondage. Although sometimes we cannot see the gross body changing, chanting the holy name of the Supreme Lord immediately changes the subtle body and because the subtle body changes, the living entity living is immediately freed from material bondage. After all, changes of the gross body are conducted by the subtle body. That we understand, right? Changes of the gross body are conducted by the subtle body. After the destruction of the gross body, the subtle body takes the living entity from his present gross body to another. In the subtle body, the mind is predominant. And therefore, if one's mind is always absorbed in remembering the activities of the lotus feet of the Lord, he is to be understood to have already changed his present body and become purified. Therefore, it is irrefutable that a chandala or any fallen or low-born person can become a Brahmin simply by the method of bona fide initiation. So, of course, we know from other places that there's a quality to the chanting um, that needs to be there. But still, the point of the power of the Holy Name and the power of devotional service is mentioned here. And so people who don't, haven't read the Bhakti Shastris and don't understand and, and are born into like a caste system consciousness, we can understand why they have that misconception and how uh, painstaking it might be to, to convince them of the proper understanding as being mentioned here. At least we should be uh, convinced of that. So any final thoughts on this or anything else in the last two minutes? This seems like a, a climax of uh, the, the verse that we spoke of a few minutes ago about envy. Hmm. This, this, this is uh, uh, how uh, about the subtle body and the gross body, uh, how, how quickly the body can change. Good. Thank you for that. Other thoughts? So we will finish this chapter next week, and we will go on to the chapter two, which is the activities of Maharaj Agnitra, um, who was the son of uh, Maharaj Priyabrata, and will uh, I think is the eldest son, if I recall. 
and hear about him and also yeah, the nature of his consciousness. And uh, in the meantime, I hope you all have a nice locked down week in Krishna consciousness. <laughs> and I, I think maybe some of you have been seeing we, we are getting together a website with all the different Krishna conscious activities and, and things for children, et cetera. If you have children, um, uh, I would, I strongly recommend this, this, uh, program that, uh, Prana Prabhu and his good wife, Chandrakoti Mataji, uh, are doing. It's a very good program for, uh, for, for children. Um, and I uh, hope you have a great Krishna conscious week. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Always the problem. Thank you.